Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast with Simon Cocking, Senior Editor. I'll be doing a series of interviews with people at the cutting edge of green tech, clean tech, and anything else that we think is interesting and worth listening to for you guys, our listeners. So today uh, we are going to be speaking with Hazel Henderson, who is a has a very interesting person with a, a a fantastic address book. She's done a lot and she knows a lot of interesting people and she's very passionate about what she does. So look, first of all, uh, thanks for coming on the podcast, Hazel. Pleasure. Nice to be with you again, Simon. Cool. And um, for those who don't know what you do and what your area of expertise is, could you just maybe give give uh, our listeners a brief introduction as to as to that aspect, please? Yes. Well, I began as an environmentalist uh, activist and uh, ended up in the uh, 1970s as a um, cabinet level science advisor to uh, the National Science Foundation and the National Academy of Engineering and the U.S. Office of Technology Assessment for six years. So uh, basically... Um, I've always been concerned about um, how technology was evolving and uh, whether it was going in the right direction, you know, to environmental sustainability or to more environmental destruction. And that always turned out to be how the financial system was driving it and whether the financial system had the right information uh, to drive innovation in the right direction. And most of the time I found that finance um, was woefully ignorant. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, <laughs> and I mean, so so I, I did a master's in economics and, you know, that was in the 90s. And the concern was that we weren't including the real costs for the use of water and air amongst others, because with the whole tragedy of the commons these things were seen as free rather than you know with, without cost or impact but obviously if you don't treat the earth in a holistic way that that's not that the economics will be good and people will be dead so that, I, yeah. I, I i hear what you're saying um i guess let's, let's start from now and then we can go all over the place um what have you been working on most recently because i know you've done a few interesting articles recently well, uh, over the last two years, I became really alarmed about the global food system and the fact that it was teetering perilously on the planet's 3% of fresh water, which was dwindling and getting polluted. And at the same time, we were relying uh, on on basically five monocultured grains that were in international trade, you know, commodity markets and all of that. And we were completely overlooking the other half of the plant kingdom on this planet, which is salt loving plants that thrive on salt water in uh, desert and degraded lands without fertilizers, without pesticides. And guess what? They have complete proteins. They're better for humans uh, in terms of their mineral profile. And they can't be captured by any greedy capitalists because they grow all over the world, um, many of them wild. And it just occurred to me, my God, was this an example of willful blindness or was it the fact that the incumbent um, food uh, industrial complex 
had kind of captured the market in rather the way the fossil fuel industry captured the energy market. So we did two reports on this, which are free and um, downloadable from our website. Um, one was uh, in 2018 called Capturing CO2 While Improving Human Nutrition and Health. And we were pointing out that these salt-loving plants not only provide um, all of this wonderful nutrition, but they also are the most efficient at capturing ambient CO2 and storing it in their very deep roots and in the soil where it belongs. So it was kind of, you know, the what's not to like and how is this happening? And we then we did a, a follow-up report called Transitioning to Science-Based Investing. And we pointed out that, oh, my God, you know, the reason all of this uh, was overlooked, all these wonderful opportunities were being overlooked, is the fact that the financial system was still operating on these very narrow textbook models, you know, um, as you were saying, that don't include external costs, they don't look at external real world uh, risks, they're looking at their own internal risks, you know, market risk and inflation risk and all that kind of thing. And so we came out and said it out loud that basically the financial system was operating on what we called magical thinking. Okay. And that they, they needed to look through the other end of the telescope um, and look at the scientific data uh, on the real world and start investing based on science. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and see, and and in, in in our conversations and some of the things you've shared with me, you've shared a lot of great examples of positive things that can make a difference. And like you say, turning the telescope around and looking in other areas rather than just the things that benefit vested interests. So um, with, with this in mind and with, with the possibility that there are good solutions out there, um, can we do this? Can, can, like, can we apply the smart solutions and the technology to turn things around? Because at the same time as there's some fantastic examples, we also have a very real and very serious challenge in terms of climate change and sustainability. So, 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 so can the one be achieved to help the other? Yes, absolutely. And I think that what's happening now, it's really being driven by the younger generation who see that they're the ones that are facing this climate risk. And, and so it's quite amazing that combined with the pandemic, mm -hmm. which for the first time showed us how quickly behavior could change yeah. and how quickly systems could change, um, we suddenly saw the acceleration of the adoption of some of these new ideas. I mean, just to give you an example, Simon, um, the International Energy Agency, based in Paris for years and years, um, used to map uh, uh, the uh, market um, for fossil fuels. And it was always that the market for fossil fuels was going up and up and up and up because of population and da da da. And you know, the turnaround um, that's happened in this year, or that just began at the end of 2019, suddenly they're totally shifted now 
and do nothing but look at renewables. And they're saying that solar energy is the king of the new energy sector and that the, um, the, the renewables now, that the whole system has moved now to demand destruction. And instead of thinking that demand for, um, for fuel is going to go up, suddenly their model now is based on the reality that every time you substitute solar, wind, energy efficiency, uh, geothermal, um, whatever, you reduce the demand. And of course, there is no fuel cost. So you're reducing the costs. And as we know, the cost of renewable have just completely got dived, you know, like yeah. nobody ever thought they would. And they're now driving the market. And so it, it, it's been amazing to me, even though I've been covering this for decades, um, that I even I couldn't have imagined how this 180 degree shift would have happened in less than a year. And um, so uh, now it, it is totally, I mean, I always knew that it was possible to run the planet on renewable energy and more efficient uh, infrastructure and production methods and all of that. I knew that when I, when I wrote Politics of the Solar Age based on my experience in Washington, uh, I wrote that in 1981, and uh, I knew from looking at it firsthand and seeing all of the power of the incumbent fossil fuel companies, how they managed to get all of the subsidies and the tax breaks and everything else. And a lot of the experts that I worked with back then uh, would agree that if we had subsidized solar, wind, energy efficiency, and all of these other um, renewable sources to the same extent that we were subsidizing fossil fuels and nukes, that the entire U.S. economy would be completely run on renewables by 1975. Wow. So you see, we have blown off, you know, 30 years um, fighting back um, the incumbent, the, the power of the incumbent fossil fuel and nuclear um, interests. And, and of course, all of the dependent industries of the fossilized sectors, you know, internal combustion automobiles and heavily um, uh, oil intensive agriculture, almost every sector you know, was a, a sector based on fossil fuels. And so um, w when I described all of this in Politics of the Solar Age, um, which at the time, of course, nobody understood. It got very good reviews, you know, from the New York Times and the New Scientist uh, in London. Mm -hmm. But basically, it dropped like a stone in 1981. You know, Reagan came in and took the solar panels off the roof, which Jimmy Carter had put on there. And <laughs> so mm -hmm. I took off um, around the world where that book of mine was uh, translated actually into 20 languages. And so here we are, we are still dealing with the politics of the solar age. And that book of mine now is in 800 libraries around the world. <laughs> yeah, so it I, can I mean, happen. 
Yeah, and, and I guess, it, like you say, it's both crazy that we're sort of our own worst enemies and, and we can know that something is good, but it takes us 35 years to, to use it. And then on the other hand, in, in, in 12 months or less, we can flip. I mean, and, and, and to, to reinforce what you say, I mean, 2020 has been seen to be another knockout year for the growth in energy generated by renewables. So, you know, we clearly can do it, you know. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you see, look at the way it's changed the economic textbooks. And here in the U.S. Congress, we have always had to deal with the, uh, you know, the Republicans and the conservatives. And their mantra always was cut, 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 um, austerity, you know, uh, we mustn't burden our children with debt, blah, 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 blah. And suddenly, because of the pandemic uh, and the, the, the mayhem that it produced, you know, shutting down all of these uh, local uh, businesses and destroying, you know, global airline businesses and all of that. Suddenly, um, everybody is now talking about stimulus, 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 you know, and we put through in record time a $4 trillion stimulus package uh, in the Congress and the Fed produced uh, printed $7 trillion of uh, new dollars, yeah. you know, and uh, suddenly um, all those conservatives are talking about, well, maybe we should have universal guaranteed income, basic mm. incomes, you know, yeah. and so suddenly the whole thing turned 180 degrees. Yeah, and I guess it's that thing, isn't it? Uh, when you're when you're ahead of the wave, then you're seen as crazy, and then when the paradigm flips, people say, "Oh, sure, I always thought that." You know, That's so. right. Oh, yes. Yes. That I, I knew that all along. <laughs> but however, um, they have to adopt uh, the uh, the new realities. Uh, we have to let them do it in some way to solve their egos. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and another another paper you wrote recently was uh, FinTech Good and Bad News for Sustainable Finance. So 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 why why is FinTech good and bad news for sustainable finance? Well, uh, back then, that was, what, four or five years ago now, and you saw it coming, um, and, and you saw that it was going to be the usual kind of tug of war between the incumbents and uh, the, the new uh, entrants into the market. And the incumbents, of course, wanted to use fintech to bolster their position. Um, and to to use um, all of the new digital tools, the bank, the old banking system, and the financial firms, and all the rest of it, their whole idea of fintech was to use it to um, to pave the cow path, as it were, you know, and take all of their legacy systems, the backroom stuff, you know, and uh, try to digitize it and computerize it, and. And then they wanted to take control uh, that they would own the blockchains and they would own the cryptocurrencies. And so that I knew that that battle, um, because you see it in every single sector around any kind of technological evolution. And so what's happening now is that um, a lot of the fintech models um, uh, are still, I think, a problem. Like, for example, the Libra currency uh -huh, that yeah. uh, Facebook 
um, wants to impose on the world, which yep. actually threatens the uh, global sovereign uh, banks in such a way um, that uh, it threatens the sovereignty uh, of every country in the world. Um, and, you know, so Zuckerberg says, okay, well, we'll have a governing board of good people, mm. you know, but I mean, it will report to him, you know, yeah, but, I mean, come on. I mean, they I haven't mean, managed to govern effectively with anything really so far. So, yeah. No, they they can't even manage their own uh, company. I mean, they, they more or less admitted um, that all these algorithms and everything that they've created now is totally out of their control. They yeah. don't know how to uh, how to manage it. So um, so basically, uh, you know, some of the people that I have been working with um, are still trying to push fintech towards sustainability. And um, there, there's a new group out of the UN uh, that's been trying to do that. And they put out a book recently called um, uh, People's Money and um, beginning to open up the whole issue of the politics of money creation and credit allocation. And of course, this has been uh, a very um, deep subject of mine for many, many years. And some years ago, uh, we put out a TV program, which is still up on our website and free on demand, called, um, uh, uh, it's called The Money Fix. And the first half of that show um, looks at the politics of money creation and how it fell into private hands. Because in our US con constitution, um, it says that the Congress uh, coins the money. In other words, it's an official kind of thing that, that belongs to all of us. And uh, basically what happened uh, was that the private banking system took it over uh, in the setting up of the Federal Reserve System, which people think is a government agency, but it's actually a private company owned by the 12 big um, uh, uh, private banks. And so we look at that um, and, and how money creation um, has become another power game, as, as so to speak. And then the second half of the show talks about um, local communities who, for some reason or other, uh, don't get enough liquidity uh, from the central bank. You know, they're overlooked, they're kind of in flyover country or whatever. And so they create their own local currencies to clear their own markets. And I began to look around the world at all of these cities, small cities and uh, towns that were creating their own local currencies. And they were in every country in the world, practically. And I used them as a sort of uh, indicator of how inefficiently the, the National Central Bank uh, uh, was um, operating the economy. Uh, and so um, one of the things that um, I found and this is a uh, actually this there's a very famous book which costs thousands of dollars if you try to go and buy it on ebay or go on amazon and it's called uh, the catalog of depression script 
in the US and Canada. And it's a big fat book with illustrations of all of the local currencies that almost every city and town in Canada and the United States are set up for itself um, during the depression when the banks were closing and um, the depression was at its height. And so every little town in North America uh, just simply started creating their own local currencies. So the point is that everybody knows how to do this. And what I found was so interesting was that it illustrated that there's nothing magic about money. We can create our own money and we've been doing this for decades. Mm. Oh yeah, look, I mean, uh, in, in the UK, you had uh, Let's and Brad's for Bradford and different things. So yeah, I mean, and, and uh, the, the thinking behind it is good to try and keep money in the local economy and, you know, enable people to make, make a living and be supported by, to support local businesses. So I think so, but like you say too, it becomes very political and therefore, you know, the, other forces are at play to try and uh, remove that you know um self-resilience so yeah look oh up. yes they like to shut it down you know if they can but uh, the, one of the longest surviving ones in the usa is called uh, berkshires and it's in the berkshire mountains in massachusetts around the city of great barrington and that has been going for decades and the local banks in great barrington all uh, trade in Berkshires, and the uh, almost uh, and it has spawned all of the local businesses, the contract agriculture, the co-housing, and all it's meant really in Great Barrington and that area is that you have Berkshires in one pocket for all of your local transactions and your local needs, and you have U.S. dollars in the other pocket for stuff that you have to go out into the national economy to buy. So what's wrong with that? Yeah, um, and I think not at all. And, and I think that's why uh, cryptocurrencies are, are emerging because there are certainly, I mean, we, we had air miles anyway. We had, you know, money when you spend petrol. So it, it makes sense. Um, it's just that obviously it's decentralized and therefore, you know, centralized forces aren't gonna like that. Um, right. I have, I have a question to, I'd like to get your opinion on. So we just um, read a book called Accountable by Michael O'Leary and Warren Valdemanis, and it's called How We Can Save Capitalism, Stop Climate Change, Create a Fairer Society. Uh, and one of the chapters discusses impact investment and how they feel that uh, it's maybe had a very variable impact uh, and not always hard to work, not always easy to work out if it's been successful. What are your thoughts on impact investment? Do you think it's a good way to help to achieve sustainable goals or or would you agree with the authors that it's hard to measure the impacts well uh it's one of those incremental changes which was worth doing i, I was involved in it um i was an advisor to the calvert group from 1982 until 2004 when i started this company and basically um we knew that there was a market of investors out there who didn't want to invest in companies that were making weapons, that were bad polluters, that were unfair to workers, and so mm -hmm. on and so forth. Uh, and so uh, we created portfolios for them. And those portfolios took off. 
and were very successful. And they got to the point where, you know, by the end of the 1990s, about one in every six dollars in the U.S. Market, stock markets were invested in these portfolios that um, had screens against uh, various bad kinds of bad behavior. Yeah. And as it took off, um, uh, a lot of interest from the more mainstream uh, groups the, who first of all said, oh, my God, these people are going to lose their shirts. And then they realized, oh, no, they found a market like, um, for example, animal rights people. Uh, when I was at Calvert, we set up a screen very early on. Uh, for companies that were cruel to animals, used animal testing and stuff like that. And first of all, our portfolio managers groaned. They said, oh, my God, here's another thing we have to avoid now. We said, no, don't you realize there's a millions of Americans belong to the Humane Society and they're going to have nowhere else to go but to put their money into the Calvert Fund, you know. And so um, that part of it worked very well. Um, was definitely worth doing, was an incremental improvement. But then what happened was as the mainstream market sniffed new profits and all of this, um, they began to come in um, and um, exploit um, the market. And they, they came in and the term impact investing uh, sort of took over. We, we called it socially responsible investing. Then we called it triple bottom line investing and mm -hmm. green investing, ethical investing. Yeah. And then the marketing uh, began to be around this mysterious term impact investing. And I rebelled against it and I wrote an article uh, and I said, well, look, all investments have impacts come on you know some some blow the tops off mountains and some pollute the gulf of mexico why don't you come out and say what you really mean you know you do you mean environmentally friendly like the ones yeah. we're doing or do you mean no military or do you mean ones with good um employee uh, relations um, and so they loved this mystifying term, which, of course, expanded the market tremendously. It meant that groups like uh, BlackRock and um, Goldman Sachs all rushed in. Oh, yeah, well, we're doing this now. We have an impact fund. But, of course, basically, when you dug into it, I mean, like with BlackRock, you know, they uh, have portfolio of about seven trillion which is crazy you know nobody can properly manage seven trillion mm. and out of that there's still a trillion um is invested you know in tearing up the rainforest to produce meat you know yeah. uh, for yeah. running cattle and uh, in all kinds of unsustainable things and so they just go to davos you know to oh yeah well you know we have an impact fund now and you know so the market is working and of course um what we have been doing with our green transition scoreboard reports over the last uh, ever since 2009 um is showing that the way to the really cleaner technologies and the, the way to really go and so we're turning that into a textbook now so that the next generation of business school students 
will know how this transition to the green investing and green finance actually happened. And that was we had to drag these um, kind of mainstream finance people. We had to drag them kicking and screaming to what we were doing <laughs> you know and so yeah, now they're yeah. now they're claiming oh well we knew that all the time you know yeah look i mean i i hear you and uh, i i think you're you're right uh, when, when i moved to ireland in the 90s uh, i spoke to one of the banks and said do you have an ethical impact eth ethical fund uh, and they said well all our investments are ethical i said okay well what do you wh what do they do they said well we wouldn't put in anything bad i said okay well go on tell me what do you and don't you invest in and they're like oh well you just have to trust us and it's like um no i, I think it's not unreasonable you know are you investing in weapons they said oh we wouldn't invest in weapons i said well can you show that and they said well we, we you know and it, it was that vague and fluffy um so like thankfully like you say people are forced to actually demonstrate and equally like you say too sometimes some people define it as simply not investing in tobacco you know as in we're not investing in something bad rather than that they're necessarily investing and some of the funds would consider that shares in facebook are are good because they're not doing bad but as we've seen there are there are a variety of ways in which you can do bad <laughs> oh yes my god yeah i mean facebook is going to destroy democracy if we don't uh, reform it and reform those business models yeah absolutely so yeah. exactly there's there's a variety of ways um i have a question for you and uh i i, I know you have a variety of sources so how do you get your information and inspiration and what keeps you up to date well um i have uh uh, a kind of a, a really interesting information ecosystem <laughs> and mm -hmm. it's based on uh, it's based on relationships built over the years you know being involved in science policy for as long as i have and so there are all of these um, science policy journals and technology journals and then um i i, I cover uh, what is the mainstream doing? I, I always um, look at The Economist uh, to see whether they're beginning to shift in the right direction, which they are. Um, I think Bloomberg has been doing a great job with the Bloomberg New Energy Finance yeah. and now the Bloomberg Green. And that's one of the reasons we realized we didn't need to do the Green Transition Scoreboard anymore because everybody's jumping on board now you know s p is doing it you know and um uh, morgan stanley has bought up most of these groups like um Innovest, you know that we used to get information from but mm -hmm. basically i take the new scientist and uh, i mean you know it's there's there's so many sources i mean like uh, i look at science daily every day um and the the amount of innovation that's going on is absolutely extraordinary and and um i have about 500 emails come in every morning and a lot of them are information uh, from various countries in the world that that wouldn't get into the you know usual uh, uh journals or anything else so uh, i love scanning all of this stuff and my model basically is um, how the planet actually functions. And, uh, and basically, 
you have to take uh, uh, you have to 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 take the information uh, from groups who actually do understand how the planet functions. And what I mean by that is that the planet is powered by our mother star, the sun. Yeah. And uh, we don't actually need to dig in the ground um, to find um, the, the production, the goods and services we need. All we need to do is to capture the free photons that come in every day and are incorporated into phytoplankton and photosynthesis and in cre create our food supply. And we have to remember, too, that there's no shortage of water. We are the water planet, and all of this malinvestment going on right now um, on the 3% of fresh water are where we should be shifting to saltwater agriculture and using the other half of the plant uh, species um, that thrive on salt water. Um, and, and so uh, that that's my basic um, conceptual framework, and it enables me uh, to not pay attention to an awful lot of stuff. In other words, um, out of my 500 emails that come in every day, uh, I can immediately delete about 150, you know, <laughs> because I, I know the sources uh, don't actually understand how the planet functions. Yeah, look, I mean, I think that ability to filter is is important, isn't it, you know? Oh, yeah, my God. I mean, absolutely. And uh, I think that that's really um, the problem with social media um, is that they amplify the noise. Uh, and, you know, I'm always looking for the signal. Yeah. And when you've got all these social media uh, firms amplifying noise all the time, you know, so uh, I just finished uh, reading a book called Bombarded by um, a guy who um, was very much involved in the weaponizing of social media to win elections. Okay. And, you know, that that really happened in the United States that begun with Google. Um, that moved in on the second Obama uh, presidency and helped him win the second term. And then the Republicans picked it up and, um, and they spent a lot on uh, digitizing uh, their approach. And this book, this guy is really an insider and knows how all of those uh, psychographic targeting algorithms really work and how they were linked to buying media buys um, to target these same populations. I mean, to give you an example, uh, here in Florida, um, we only lost Florida uh, for the Democrats because of psycho, psycho, you know, this psycho-targeting of mm -hmm. the Cuban population uh, in Miami um, who were terrified of this slogan of, about socialism. Yeah, uh, because they lived under socialism, or their parents had lived under socialism, and so um, the, this was very, very carefully lined up with media buys uh, in the Spanish language media in the Miami area, and um, they all fell uh, very hard for Trump uh, because of that particular successful uh, targeting operation. So. 
basically what we have to do and uh, this guy he comes up with five reforms that are needed and um, I certainly agree with all of them number one um, is that uh, we have to uh, actually break these companies up and uh, they are all too big they they admit they don't know how to manage their operations anymore and there's nothing wrong with breaking them up and actually there's antitrust uh, now against um, Google and Facebook uh, in the in the, uh, the in the government antitrust two suits and then the second thing we have to do is to repeal section 230 of our communications act which allowed these companies to grow um, by saying, oh, we're just a platform, we, you know, we're like the telephone company. Uh, and they therefore don't have any liability for the toxic content and the hate and uh, the violence that, that's on their sites. So we have to uh, repeal that section 230 uh, so that they'd be forced to be responsible. Um, the third thing is that they, they really have to change their business model. You can't say that you're the public square um, and then get all of your profit from advertising. That, yeah. that just doesn't work. So if they say they're going to be the public square, they have to be uh, public utilities um, with uh, government oversight, just like the telephone company or just like the uh, electric grid. The fourth thing is you have to have authentication. In other words, you can't sign up for any one of these media platforms unless you um, authenticate who you are. So no more anonymity. And, and he, he figures out that just having the same kind of authentication that you have, like when you open a bank account, you know, know your customer. Mm -hmm. uh, he said that would cut out about 50% of the bad behavior right there. And then the fifth thing, which blew my mind, and I've had a long conversation with him since, and we've agreed to work together, is he says, that um, the only way to get out of these kind of duopolies, like um, everything is either Republican or Democrat, red or blue, left or right, and most of the uh, issues don't even get into play properly because we can't uh, kind of open the space up for third and fourth parties. And he was saying that it is possible now there are all of these groups that are not represented. You know, most, uh, I think about 60% of the voters uh, in the US really are registered as independents and they're forced to join either the Republicans or the Democrats, as I was, um, if you want to vote in a primary. Yeah. That's the only reason, really, that I've, I've joined the Democrats. And it was a similar in Britain. You know, I've just written an article about this, which is on our latest headlines, called U.S. Voters, a Circular Politics uh, Beyond Polarization. And when uh, there's a visual on there, um, that tries to illustrate this. And I remember I started uh, writing that when I was uh, looking at Britain. And this was Britain in the 1980s, where there was the Labour Party and the Conservative Party. And uh, basically, it, you were one or the other, you know. 
and the, there was there's no liberals there's no no real third party and what i discovered then simon uh, to my amazement, was that the total membership of both the Conservative Party and the Labour Party was a fraction of the membership of the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And I mean, you see, there's all of these people um, that we can now identify and pull together. And this guy uh, says that he knows how to do that. And he said he could create a third party um, using the, the, these tools um, much more appropriately um, to give voices to all of these people from Black Lives Matter to um, Earth Day uh, to whatever, uh, pull them all together. And he said you could create a third party that would defeat um, both the Republicans and the Democrats. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, look, I mean, and, and it, it gives grounds for hope as well, which is positive. And like you say, um, until now, maybe the, the tail has been wagging the dog that um, like the voter turnout was so much higher this time, which hopefully brings more people into play and more mainstream views. Whereas when turnout is lower, then it's just left to the more, you know, um, radicalized sections. Um, yeah. Look, it's, it's, it's been really good to talk to you and, and, and hear you in person and, and go through these things. How can people find out more about your work and what you do and how, where you express your thoughts and insights? Oh, well, please go to ethical markets, all one word, plural, ethicalmarkets.com. And uh, we have a thing uh, right there on the homepage called Latest Headlines. Uh -huh. And all of my articles show up there. Uh, and I also uh, am writing for a very good new, uh, well, that, I don't know how new they are, but they're new to me, called Wall Street International. It's a magazine. And they have about 5 million readers. And I publish articles there as well. I, the, the, the last two I did, I did one that's current there called uh, Fixing the Money Meme. And that goes into what we were talking about. You know, let, let's demystify money and, uh, and, the, and, and really address the politics of money creation. Because money is a tool of power. And, you know, so we have to get it right. And um, I did another article in there called The Politics of Production um, and looking at mining and particularly drawing attention to a program we've had going on ethicalmarkets.com for a long time uh, where we certify, get this, only diamonds and jewels not mined from Mother Earth. And um, this is the Ethic Mark Gems certification. And it's a separate website to ethicmarkgems.com. And basically, what we're saying is that mining for uh, gems in the earth is obsolete, unnecessary, and of course, kills hundreds of miners every year and is in very environmentally destructive. So let's start by joining up with all these groups that want to shut it down, you know, the, the groups against uh, blood diamonds and all that. Yeah. And so basically, there's little artisan uh, laboratories in many countries around the world um, who create chemically identical gems um, in their 
backyard or in their basement, you know. Mm -hmm. And there was a piece in The Guardian um, about a week ago of the guy who started the company Ecotricity. And his new uh, enterprise is called Sky Diamonds. And guess what? He is capturing ambient CO2 and turning it into diamonds. What's wow. wrong with that? And so uh, I'm uh, in touch with him uh, through a group we work with in London called the South Bank uh, Investment Research Group. And uh, I'm hoping that we're gonna give them um, our certification. They'll be the first ones that earn our certification. <laughs> so a lot of good things you can do in the market. Uh, so we don't wanna give up on markets. We just wanna give up on all of the old isms, you know, the capitalism, communism, socialism, uh, let's look at when markets are appropriate and when they're not appropriate and create market failures. Awesome. Uh, I, I think that's that's very positive. Um, uh, yeah, I, I love that idea. It's a bit like uh, laboratory grown meat as well. You know that. Yeah, exactly. We can, we can make definitely it, do make some a things. disruptive industry to shut down the old stuff. <laughs> look, uh, thanks, Hazel. It's, it's been lovely to talk to you. And uh, I, I really... I, I think it'll be really interesting for everyone to listen to this one. Well, thank you, Simon. We hope you enjoyed that podcast and we will be bringing you more across as diverse and interesting a range of stories as we can find. You're welcome to reach out to us on Twitter, LinkedIn or by email and give us any feedback and let us know what you'd like us to cover in the future. Thanks and keep listening.